Welcome to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaskan Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm excited today to have a great uh, friend and colleague joining us. His name is Dr. Greg Steinke. Greg, it's uh, it's wonderful to have you on the show again. Hey, thank you, David. This is really exciting to be able to uh, cover some of the details with COVID-19 and some of the other things we're going to talk about today. Well, you're exactly right. Uh, our topic for today, at least as we begin, is the good news about COVID-19. Here we are recording this segment in September of 2020. And I'll be honest with you, as my listeners, I was kind of thinking, well, like many of us that come fall, maybe this would all be behind us, you know, looking back some, you know, six months ago. But uh, we're still in the thick of things, at least in uh, in many places in the United States. And Dr. Steinke, you are still in the thick of things because you are a hospitalist working in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and you are actively caring for COVID-19 patients. Isn't that the case? That's right. And David, when it first started, no doubt the hospital was, uh, was on edge and there was a lot of reorganization that, that occurred. And I had the opportunity to uh, get involved with starting to see the COVID-19 patients that uh, started coming in. You know, in Chattanooga, we were kind of late to the game. We were hearing about the uh, significant outbreaks in the, the east and the northeast but when it came to the South, we did, really didn't get a lot of cases until uh, June, July uh, was really where we had a, a major peak in cases. But it's it's significantly come down. It's probably cut by half now from what it was in terms of the uh, amount of people in the hospital at any one time. So some parts of the country finding just what you're finding, other places still seeing rising numbers as of our recording of this show. And I guess the big question, Greg... You and I, as we spoke about doing this program together, you said you want to get out some of the good news about COVID-19. So from the perspective of a hospitalist, what is some of the good news? Well, you know, I think the number one thing uh, that I've come to realize over the last multiple months is that when we first had the opportunity to hear about it from China and, and so on, uh, we started realizing that this was a pretty serious thing. We were hearing 20% hospitalization rates. We were hearing four or five, maybe more percent people, of people dying who got it. And, uh, and it scared everybody significantly. But as we've uh, been going through this uh, epidemic, um, as the data has been coming out, we're realizing that it is, in fact, less serious than we first thought. No doubt people are, are still struggling with it. No doubt there's still plenty of people being hospitalized, but it's the, the percentages are not that high. And the reason for that is that um, we have a lot of asymptomatic infections. What we're actually learning in the U.S. is uh, based on a 10-site study that came out in July across the U.S. Uh, from the COVID-net data from the CDC that probably somewhere about 40% of cases are actually asymptomatic. 
And so you have to adjust the numbers based on that. And so certainly we're looking at less than 10% hospitalization rates. We're looking at less than 1% uh, death rates. Um, and that's, uh, that's a good news. You know, we, we got that first inkling of that good news. Uh, if you remember in February with that Diamond Princess cruise ship that had a big outbreak on it down near Japan. Um, they had about 3,700 people who were on that ship and they had over 600 people who ended up becoming a case. But what they realized is that those cases were actually almost half of them were asymptomatic. And it was pretty good news in that most of those people were over the age of 50. And so um, that was a, a first little inkling. For a long time, we, we weren't sure about what was going on there. But that's a lot of good news that we have a much higher asymptomatic rate. We have a much lower hospitalization rate than we thought. It's not 20%. It's significantly lower than that based on the antibody testing. So this is great news. So basically what you're sharing with us, Greg, I think is uh, is putting things in perspective that many people, and I, I think this message has been getting out, many people really don't get noticeably sick at all with COVID-19. Now, the the flip side of the discussion, and I think we have to speak about this, is there have been people from the beginning, kind of the naysayers, if you will, uh, most of them, at least in my experience, I'm not going to say all of them, there are health professionals in this group, but uh, most of them are not health professionals and they've been looking at numbers. And they're saying, well, look at all these people die from influenza. Uh, there's people dying from COVID-19. This just looks like a bad flu. We, we've heard that comparison and there's been messaging where people are trying to distance themselves from that rhetoric, people in the, in the healthcare community. So what about this uh, comparison that, that people have been making from the eyes of a, of, a, of, a, of a specialist, a hospitalist? You're taking care of sick people in the hospital. How does this compare to a bad flu season as far as what you're seeing? COVID-19 has features uh, to it that you just don't see in flu. We're seeing more problems with the blood clotting system in this illness. We're seeing a more frequent problem with prolonged issues with pneumonias and breathing than you see in the flu. In the flu, you can typically have a, a week-long hospitalization, often shorter, but we often have patients who are there significantly longer than that, especially if they uh, land themselves in the ICU. A two-week hospitalization is not atypical at all um, with these cases. So Yes, uh, I believe this is a magnitude uh, uh, of threat higher in terms of its strength on the body. There are, are certainly some other things going on. There's a problem that we're seeing with the way the immune system is interacting in some people where there's this excess inflammation that's occurring. So we are doing what we can to minimize that inflammation. And the in interesting thing, David, is that a lot of these people coming into the hospital are actually in their second or third week of illness. Hmm. Sometimes they're not even having, you know, substantial fevers anymore. Their, their, their fever curve is starting to die down, but their shortness of breath is worsening. And that's uh, some of the interesting details that we've, we've been seeing with this illness. Well, let's talk more about the good news. I mean, that's kind of sobering, but we're, we're clearly seeing, and I've heard this, 
for many people on the front lines. I mean, for those who are saying, well, well, Dr. DeRose, you have an MD after your name as well. Uh, what kind of uh, experience are you seeing? Actually, my clinical work exclusively uh, since COVID-19 has, has been relatively recently, Greg. I don't know if, if we've been comparing notes uh, personally, but I've been doing telemedicine. So a lot of needs for, for doctors to do these virtual visits. So over the last six weeks or so, I'm reconnected with the clinic where I worked for a number of years and doing phone visits, you know, caring for people over the phone. So I'm not on the front lines in the respect of any danger of getting COVID-19 from a patient. But having said that, what I'm hearing from those folks on the front lines, like yourself, is that totally different in the ERs, totally different in the ICUs uh, compared to the, the, you know, the seasonal influenza, like you've mentioned. So there is this difference, but we're seeing good news in spite of the greater severity of the disease. And I guess one of the, the questions about good news uh, first, maybe we'll go to that population you mentioned, the intensive care population. I know early on it seemed like there was great anxiety to get people on ventilators, uh, breathing for them. It seems like that pendulum has shifted. We're, we're not hearing a lot of talk about ventilator shortages. What's happened as far as our management of breathing problems in these individuals? We've realized that because many of them are able to maintain a good level of consciousness. Not everybody, but many of them are. Um, we can just focus on their oxygenation. So we are able to, you know, put them on you know, regular oxygen, and then we start to escalate the uh, the vigor of the oxygen as needed, and that saves people from having to go on a ventilator many, many times. So we've, you know, we we've kind of shifted from thinking at first that these folks were going to need to be uh, intubated and placed on a ventilator right away to delaying it as long as possible because we're just seeing people do a lot better. You know, if they're on a, a high flow oxygen situation for a couple of days, sometimes a week they can be on it. They, they tend to get through it. And it's, it's interesting that it's your, their lungs that are, are so often, you know, giving them trouble. They'll start to feel better even in some ways but their lungs are still injured and still unable to get the oxygen. And, you know, it was interesting uh, in terms of the ICU, uh, looking at what New York experienced. You know, we heard a lot early in this pandemic that New York City hospitals were going to be overwhelmed, that they were significantly in, in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the data, they were able to uh, increase their capacity a bit. They were not overwhelmed. At the worst of the epidemic, um, they still had one in six hospital beds open in New York City. At the worst of the epidemic, they still had one in 10 ICU beds open in New York City. And so the New York City hospitals were not overwhelmed. And that's, a, that's good news that we haven't run into a situation in our country that I'm aware of where people were basically being kind of left uh, in a situation where where they were unable to access the usual services. Now, Greg, you and I both know in Indian country, historically, a strong emphasis on natural therapies. Uh, as I've worked with First Nations peoples throughout North America, it's, uh, it's very fascinating to me to see just the variety of natural therapies that have been used, everything from 
what we might call hydrotherapy to herbal therapies to other lifestyle-based therapies. Talk with us a little bit about the, the hydrotherapies. I know you've had a, a special interest in this, and you're doing even some pilot work. Is that what I understood as far as some, some studies looking at the feasibility of using some of these uh, techniques basically with COVID-19? Yeah, David, you know, when uh, the, the initial research was coming out of China on COVID-19, there was a study that, um, that was really remarkable that was showing that patients who were hospitalized who did not have a fever were 60% more likely to die than those who had a fever. And so that data, along with prior uh, knowledge related to the, the changes in temperature and the effects of temperature on, uh, on your immune system when you have an infection, led us to uh, go into this pilot study that we're doing. We have uh, just about 20 people in the study so far. And what we do is we heat up their chest for about 20 minutes, twice a shift. And then we put, uh, after the 20-minute heat session, we put a uh, cold, wet cloth on their chest uh, for um, less than a minute. That serves as a heat lock to keep that heat in there. And so we've been doing this on these patients, and, you know, we'll see what it shows. We, have, we don't have any data back yet, but I'm interested in the fact that as you get the temperature to come up, we, you know, I've been aiming at giving it to patients who are making inadequate fevers. They, they should be making a fever, and, and they're not. And, uh, and so we're, we're trying to stimulate that and help their, their immune system to do better. We know that there are certain cells in the immune system that when they are heated up, um, it helps them to focus in on the, the uh, attack. It helps them to uh, become more vigorous. And then it also helps those same cells, um, cells called macrophages, that are very, uh, very abundant in your lungs, to actually go into a calmer and less inflamed state through the effect of fever, and that may in fact be why the um, the death rate is lower when you have a fever. This is fascinating stuff. We, we want to talk more about the exciting news about COVID-19 and about other topics as well. It's not exclusively a radio show that will just look at this cutting-edge topic. We've got other great information with Dr. Greg Steinke that you don't want to miss. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. 
We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Dr. Greg Steinke. Dr. Steinke is an MD. He's also a preventive medicine specialist with a master's in public health degree. But most of his work right now is in the area of hospital care. He's what is called a hospitalist working in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Greg, you've been on the front lines of this whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic. You've been sharing with us things that are good news. And before we segue away from the hydrotherapy, I know some people are calling it hydrothermal therapy or hyperthermic therapy, things that raise the body temperature. Let me see if I've got this protocol correct. Are you basically just putting a hot pack on the chest for 20 minutes? Is that the entirety of the heat exposure? Yeah. In fact, uh, in the hospital, to make it easy for the nurses, we are just using heating pads. We're just using a run-of-the-mill heating pad that you can buy at any pharmacy and putting it on the chest, and the heating pad automatically turns off. And, you know, the interesting thing, as the patients have been using this, a lot of patients um, are having chest pain with this COVID-19 pneumonia, you know. COVID-19, when it gets into your chest and gets into your lungs, we call that pneumonia. And that's not separate from what is going on with COVID-19. It's part of the process. And when you get that pneumonia going and you get that inflammation, you get that fluid building up in, inside your lungs, um, that can create a lot of pain. The deep breath can uh, really be painful. And the heat, applying the heat on the chest we're finding, I found in, in a couple of different cases that it, it significantly helped the pain. Hmm. I thought that was really good. The other thing that I noticed um, that a couple of different patients have stated to me is that um, it had a soothing effect on them. They, they actually found it uh, uh, to be kind of a relaxing, almost like the, the, the sense that you get when you're in the shower and there's hot water on you. Um, it's, it's that kind of, of experience. And, and so I think there's 
there's more to it than just the effects on your immune system. We certainly appreciate that, but it, it has other benefits as well. I mean, this is exciting, and I can think of uh, folks who tune in throughout Indian country. Uh, some folks are, are listening. Perhaps they work at maybe a tribal health facility, maybe a tribal uh, you know run hospital, and they're thinking, you know, maybe we can try this. Have you run into any pitfalls? Have there been any problems in in doing this? You know, if you're already having a significant fever, then you know it, it's probably not uh, not necessary. I haven't had any complications from it. You know, and if you're at home right now and you're you're well and you're concerned that you could be getting COVID-19, you can actually start engaging in the heat therapy to to try to get your immune system in better shape. We know that people who engage in various kinds of activities like sauna use, um, like uh, hot tub use, countries like Finland, for example, who are very uh, into this, studies show that they are much less likely to have an upper respiratory infection, that their immune systems are in basically in better shape because they're able to mount an immune response more effectively because their immune system is more used to going through this heat process. Um, that's actually one of the reasons why exercise is beneficial, because your body heats up, and as your body heats up in the process of exercise, your immune system gets to have some practice at uh, getting more aggressive, getting more assertive, um, and, uh, and it can be beneficial when the real thing comes along. I'm sure many people are thinking in Indian country right now about sweat lodges and, and other native heating practices, you know, wondering if there's been studies. I, I haven't heard, but it, we would think that any kind of practice that is raising the body temperature is having some beneficial effect, not just short-term, but long-term on the immune system. Is that safe? I mean, is it, I mean again, we, we don't want to say, well, this is proven, but the evidence seems to suggest that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's even randomized trials uh, looking at the prevention of a cold, of an upper respiratory infection, and using the heat uh, therapy methods, showing that there's a significant improvement in just getting a cold. And we know COVID-19 is not, you know, just a run-of-the-mill cold. It's certainly not. But coronavirus has multiple viruses in that family that are well-known cold viruses. And so there's a certainly a piece of of the current coronavirus epidemic that has that feel to it. And um, and so I think that data has some applicability in that regard. Okay. Well, this is exciting information and definitely good news that there are natural things that we can do to improve our immune system. But, Greg, it, I mean, it begs a question, and some people would say, well, we've been hearing a lot of bad news because at first a lot of us were saying, myself included, that maybe, uh, well... <laughs> The silver lining, if a person did get infected, was that they would have immunity. We, early on, though, started hearing stories about, well, this immunity is not lasting. It's very short-lived. Do we know anything more? Is there any good news on that front? If a person has been exposed, if they've had an asymptomatic infection or a more serious infection, are they likely to have, uh, well, some degree of prevention? prevention, protection from COVID-19 if it comes knocking on their door again? Yes, David, there are, uh, there are several studies coming out on this right now, and there is evidence of immunity after COVID-19 infection for months. It's at least three months now that there's evidence in the studies uh, that have come out so far. I would say that it's a nuanced explanation when it comes to 
what the nature of that immunity is. You know, for those people who maybe didn't have very much of a dose, maybe their body is in, in good health and, and they were able to mount a, a rapid and an aggressive immune response, they may not make antibodies in, in as great a way if they remained asymptomatic. But that doesn't mean that they're not uh, necessarily immune. There are T-cell studies. There's evidence that their body was actually exposed to the uh, COVID-19 and their body made a memory of that, but it didn't get into the level of antibody levels. If you're more elderly, which means that you're more likely to have an antibody type response, you're more likely to get sicker with this, you are much more likely to have antibodies uh, made as a result of the illness and that, and that's what the evidence shows that, um, if you have a moderate or, or severe infection, you're much more likely to make antibodies. And those antibodies start to be made pretty reliably about two weeks after the onset of symptoms in most people. So this is really a, a topic that has been given a lot of attention in the medical literature. And I think a lot of lay folks still, their eyes kind of glaze over, you know, T cells, antibodies. Can you break that down just simply? Greg, why someone might have a blood test, they might say there's antibodies against the COVID-19, and someone else, uh, they end up talking about their T-cells. What is all this? Yeah, I mean, in terms of practical type of thing, it means that if you've had it before, if you're a person in regular health, kind of a regular run-of-the-mill type person, you're not likely to get symptoms again if you're exposed. And um, I think that's reasonable. Um, I'm not going to say that there's not exceptions. There, there have been. I've seen them in the hospital. But for the most part, for most people, you're not going to get this again. You, you don't have to worry about the fact that, that it, it, you, you could get it again, for, at least for the moment. And, um, and we'll see how long the immunity lasts. Uh, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll last a long time and we won't have this epidemic again. I mean, with the initial SARS, we haven't seen anything coming up again. And that was over well over a thousand people who had it and and cleared it, and we haven't seen that virus rear its ugly head again. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit then about immunity because we were talking about natural therapies when it came to dealing with COVID nineteen. We talked about the the hydrotherapy, the heating therapies. What about things that we can do lifestyle wise that might enhance the immune system? Yeah, David, there's actually been an increasing amount of, of talking about that. It's been pretty interesting. I was just reviewing this this article very recently that is coming out in some of the sports literature, talking about how they can get the athletes to have better immune systems. And so it's, I think it's really important that we have a knowledge about how we can improve our immune system in terms of things that we're doing. Let's talk about vitamin D first. You know, vitamin D ha- is having a number of, of good studies coming out showing that if your vitamin D levels are low, you're much more likely to have a severe case of COVID-19 if you're exposed. And so the more you can do to get your vitamin D levels up, the better. Obviously, we recommend a stint of sunshine whenever available. We don't want to get too much at, at one, any one sitting so we don't burn. But getting that regular dose of vitamin D from the sunshine is going to improve your immune system and is going to make it less likely that you have a problem from COVID-19. Boy, this is this is just fascinating stuff. And I know when we speak about vitamin D and we speak about vitamin D levels, you and I are both practitioners who for some time have been checking those in our patients. 
if someone actually has a vitamin D level using the kind of standard units that we would use here in the U.S., what is a good vitamin D level? Um, a good vitamin D level is above 25. Getting up into maybe the range of, of 40 would be uh, the highest uh, that I, I think you, you, you have to get. The benefits that you, you uh, achieve going from 30 to 40 is dramatically less than the benefits you achieve from going if your level is 5 and it goes up to 15. are likely um, to benefit you um, if it's quite low. It's good to get your vitamin D level checked if you can. Um, it's, it's an excellent thing to do. I'm routinely checking them in the hospital, and there's a lot of patients who are, have low vitamin D levels. It's, it's pretty remarkable how often it's occurring. Powerful stuff. We do have to step away. Greg Steinke is staying by. I'm staying by as well. Dr. Steinke is going to segue to things talking about other diseases beside COVID-19, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. We'll see some common denominators that you don't want to miss. Stay tuned. Up right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam, ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs and dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. 
Welcome back to today's edition of the broadcast. With me, Dr. Greg Steinke. Dr. Greg Steinke is a hospitalist. He's a medical doctor with an MD degree. He also has a master's in public health degree. So he's bringing that background as someone who has a vested interest both in prevention as well as in treatment. He's working on the front lines of the COVID-19 epidemic. And he's got messaging now that will tie in some of our most pressing chronic illnesses with the current pandemic. Greg, we're speaking about things that can enhance the immune system. What can we do to build our immune system? And there are connections with lifestyle practices that also impact us when it comes to more common things like diabetes and high blood pressure. Tell us about some of those relationships. Absolutely, David. You know, one of the remarkable things that uh, really shocked me when uh, we, we first started dealing with the COVID-19 epidemic was how strong uh, being overweight is in terms of putting you at risk. Mm. So, you know, we know obesity, overweight significantly increases your risk of diabetes, of high blood pressure, um, and a number of other illnesses that we're commonly dealing with in America. And so um, I think that COVID-19 is a great reason, if you haven't been able to lose weight, uh, until now to really start to focus on that issue and see if you can, you can pull some pounds off. You know, that, um, when I was in the hospital, I, um, I had a patient come out of the ICU, went in to see him. Um, he was just, you know, starting to, trying to get, uh, coherent enough and, and talking to me a bit. And he started telling me a story about how he had really started trying to improve his lifestyle and his health. He, he was significantly overweight. He had a long ways to go, but he lost about 15 pounds before he got sick on purpose doing uh, lifestyle changes. And, you know, as I was listening to him, you know, he spent basically two weeks in the ICU. He barely survived this. And as I was listening to him, I thought, you know what? If he had not lost that 15 pounds, 10 to 15 pounds before he came into the hospital with the acute infection, he probably would have died. He probably would have lost his life if it hadn't been for that effort. So you may say, you know, I've gained a lot of weight over the years and, and you know, what's what's a couple pounds going to do? Well, you know, every pound that you, you improve, your uh, your health improves, your immune system improves. And that may be the difference between life and death in some people. Greg, I'm pulling out a book. I think you know the uh, the book. It's called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. And if some of you uh, are unaware of why I would think Greg knew about this book, he was one of the co-authors. And full disclosure, uh, I'm another one of the co-authors. It, Greg, it, we were speaking about high blood pressure in this book, and we gave seven weight loss keys. And the reason I felt uh, it would be great to talk just briefly about this is because I think many people in their encounters with physicians like you and me, they've heard the message. Uh, they need to trim down. We want to help you lose weight. But people don't know what to do. I'm going to just read through these seven simple uh, concepts that we presented. If, uh, if you've got a copy of the book in front of you, it's on page 97 in Chapter 5. But uh, point number one, focus on habits not short-term diets. Number two, never make weight loss your sole focus. Number three, don't be afraid to make lifestyle changes. 
Number four, exercise daily. Number five, make clean breaks with problem foods. Number six, eat a good breakfast and don't snack. And number seven, eat to satisfy simple hunger, not appetite. Now, Greg, there's a lot we could talk on when it comes to the subject of of weight loss. Any of those seven weight loss keys especially resonate with you that, that you'd like to emphasize as far as our listening audience? I think number five is very pertinent. Um, you know, as you go through your day, I mean, everyone's a little different, but as you go through your day, isn't it true that as you get to the end of your day, um, you start to feel maybe uh, less strong with certain problem foods perhaps, or maybe there's a habit of taking certain problem foods at nights or in, you know, in the evening, uh, maybe a little bit more. Everybody's a little different, but you know, one thing that uh, that has been talked about quite a bit in some of these review articles on COVID-19 and lifestyle is this whole uh, attitude, this whole movement that's starting to try to limit the uh, the food intake on a daily basis, maybe to about eight hours uh, a day and leaving 16 hours where you're not really eating. Not everybody can do that, uh, depending on the kind of uh, activity levels and so on. But for folks who do that, um, they can have a significant amplification of the strength of their immune system while they're in that, quotes fasting state uh, during that time. And so maybe you eat breakfast and then you eat lunch and then maybe having a little snack as you get it to the evening and really trying to make that evening meal less. That'll improve your blood sugars. It'll help your blood sugars be more stable if you have diabetes. It will certainly help with weight loss. And um, it will improve your immune system. So I think that that's an excellent thing. And it'll help you with these problem foods, perhaps, because you're not really going into the kitchen, maybe. You're staying away and, and you're getting out of the habit of eating in the evening as much. This is powerful stuff. And I so appreciate you making this emphasis as far as uh, things that we can do, things that can actually help improve our immune system. Let's... uh talk about some other things, Greg, that are on this interface between chronic diseases, the diabetes, the high blood pressure, the heart disease, and COVID-19. You've spoken, you know, at some length about overweight. You've talked about a lifestyle habit that can make a difference, this so-called intermittent fasting, or, uh, you know, some people are talking about, you know, restricted uh, eating times. What else should we have on this list if we're trying to optimize our health and actually improve our immune system? Well, I mean, everybody knows about exercise, right? I mean, exercise is um, one of the kings, uh, kingpins of, uh, of lifestyle improvements. And I think uh, there has been a, an improvement among some sectors of our society in my ex- exposure to it of people trying to get out and exercise more. You know, even though there are, are segments who have, who have been uh, concerned about going outside and so on because of the epidemic, but uh, you know, getting outside and 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 going ahead and spending time, um, you know, getting some exercise outside. Ideally, if you live in a place where there's some trees and forests and par- a park or or some kind of natural setting, um, get out there, get there. Um, we know that. The uh, chemicals that are being released by trees, when you take those in, when you breathe those in, they improve your immune system. Um, there's clear studies showing that that's the case. So it's not just exercising in, in your home. I mean, if that's all you can do, then great. 
um, go ahead and do it. It's not just going to a gym, which obviously has been a limitation um, during this epidemic, but it's getting outside. You know, you can get that fresh air, you can get that sunshine, you can get uh, access to some of these healthy chemicals that are actually in the trees that the trees are uh, producing for your health. I mean, this is such a powerful message, and I know not everyone can necessarily, within the sound of this uh, show, just quickly get to a, a natural setting, but it's surprising, even in urban areas. And I know we have many Native Americans who are living in urban areas. We also have many uh, listeners to the show who are in fairly congested parts of the country. But it's it's surprising to me, Greg, often even in those congested areas, you can find places in nature where you can be out among the trees. And like you're mentioning, they've actually been studying this and showing that there are healthy compounds outside. So the health club that's closed, instead of that being a liability for your fitness program, could actually be an asset, couldn't it? Absolutely. You know, um, people who are recovering from COVID-19, there's a whole number of those folks now in our society. Um, I would encourage you to, to get outside, to, uh, to spend time with that fresh air, with those healthy chemicals that are being released from the, from the trees in the forest and so on, because that'll help your body calm down. That'll help the inflammation levels to calm down, um, as you're recovering from this illness. And it'll help to accelerate uh, um, the, the health that you want to get back to. So that's excellent. And the other thing for folks who are recovering from COVID-19 and even people who have not yet had it that I want to talk about briefly is um, hydration. You know, one of the most common reasons that we've had people come back into the hospital after being released um, with COVID-19 and, and, you know, they, they went through their hospitalization, they were sick and, and now they've gotten better and then they go home. And there's been a few times when patients have come back because they were unable to adequately hydrate. They were, they did not focus on that. And they didn't realize the, how much extra water and fluid they're losing through their skin, um, through the temperature changes that they're experiencing. And they get into a dehydrated state again, and they feel bad. And so, um, I think, you know, doing uh, your part to really focus on adequate hydration, both after COVID-19 and before is really important. So adequate hydration, getting enough water, what does that look like? How does someone know if they're really getting enough water? You know, that's a good question. I, w I would say for most people who do not have uh, a significant heart problem and so on, you know, take a look at what your urine looks like when you, when you urinate. Is your urine real dark? I mean, are you hardly ever going to the bathroom? If you are not going to, to urinate very often at all, let's say you're going once a day. You are probably not drinking enough fluids. You're not drinking enough water, which is, uh, in my opinion, the healthiest beverage. So you need to increase that if you can. Try to increase the amount of water you're taking. If you can't take a lot of water at once, if you're just a person who just can't do that, you know, try to find a way to just sip it throughout the day um, in between meals. That's the healthiest. And see if you can increase your water intake to increase the clearness of your urine, and that will help you. You'll You'll have benefits in multiple ways. You'll have clearer thinking. You'll have more energy. It will keep the inflammation levels down in your body. You'll have higher metabolism. Now, we know that there's uh, research showing that if you stay better hydrated between meals, your metabolism is higher, and that'll help you keep the weight down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's some amazing research. I know we included that in our book, too, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. 
the very fact that drinking more pure water actually raises metabolism. I think for a lot of people, they have uh, trouble wrapping their minds around it. I mean, I did as a physician at first. You know, I always thought, Greg, you know, someone says, oh, we'll drink plenty of water. It'll help you lose weight. I'm saying, well, yeah, if you're sitting down at the table and you're eating, sure, if you drink water, that's going to give you less calories, maybe fill you up or something instead of, you know, drinking a Pepsi or a Coke. But this idea that actually drinking pure water, even between meals, and especially between meals, ramps up the metabolism and can help you lose weight, I just think that is such an amazing concept and doesn't necessarily uh, make sense intuitively. People don't say, oh, well, yeah, obviously, if you drink water in between meals, it's going to ramp up your metabolism. Greg, we do have to step away from this segment. Before we do, I just want to remind our listeners that Dr. Steinke is staying by for a final segment. And, Greg, we've been speaking about the immune system. We've been speaking about COVID-19. We've been speaking about healthy lifestyle. In our last segment, I know you've got some very exciting material that our listeners do not want to miss. So stay tuned for our last segment of today's edition of our program. It is something, really, I think that you're going to walk away saying, you know what, if I just put that into practice, it can dramatically improve my health and the health of those that I love. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be right back for our final segment after these important messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions. They just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers. It sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends? So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and, and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age. The physical and mental health effects, the poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov.
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of the broadcast. I am Dr. David DeRose. Dr. Greg Steinke, who has been with me from the top of the hour, is still here. We promised you some exciting material, and I think it's one of the most exciting topics because we want to speak about something I know is a concern. Here's how I know. I mentioned earlier in the program, I've been doing telemedicine lately. I'm dealing with people who are dealing with health issues that happen regardless of whether COVID-19 is in your backyard or not. But what I'm noticing in the light of this pandemic and all the changes that have taken place, I am talking with a lot of people who are dealing with depression, who are dealing with anxiety, many of them unduly high levels of anxiety. Dr. Steinke, speak to us about the subject of anxiety and stress. Is it something that you're seeing impacting people and families with this diagnosis? Absolutely, David. Um, it's probably one of the biggest factors that we're dealing with in the hospital. Um, here we have uh, an issue where people have to be quarantined. They have to be isolated. And one of the hardest things to go through when you are going through an illness that you were scared might, might take your life is to have to be all by yourself all the time. And so here they are in the hospital and, and many times in the community, the same thing is happening where when you get the diagnosis, everyone leaves, uh, everyone stays away. And so here people are in a very scared situation sometimes, having to be all by themselves, having to relate to other people by distance. Hopefully, sometimes they have nobody to talk to, um, depending on the circumstances. And as I've uh, talked with patients, I've had situations where people are very, very concerned. I, I had one patient just recently with COPD. He was very concerned about his breathing just every day of his life. And now here he is with COVID-19 in the hospital, away from his wife, away from his family, and trying to uh, deal with shortness of breath um, with every breath, um, trying to fight this off. It's very scary for people. And I think we should talk, David, about what people can do, how they can uh, help their own situation, if at all possible, with anxiety, with the depression, with the stress. Greg, um, I think it's so critical. And I mean, I know one of the issues that uh, you and I have faced as physicians, we give these hormones shots sometimes, uh, cortisone shots, we often call them, you know, in lay circles, these uh, corticosteroids, things like prednisone or other things might be taken orally or uh, things that might be given uh, by injection in the same family. Uh, we might give them in extreme cases of inflammation or drug reactions or allergies. But one of the things we know is these things actually suppress the immune system. So as physicians, we realize that you don't necessarily want these stress hormones ramped up if you want to have good immune health. What can you tell us that could help with this uh, this whole dialogue? I mean, are there things that people need to understand first about the stress hormones and how they work, or is it more important just to jump into some practical things they can do to help deal with stress? Yeah, let me talk a little bit about uh, the level of understanding. So if you're living in a life where you know your stress levels are just high every day, what is happening in your body is, is every single day you're making a lot of stress hormones in your body, cortisol, um, adrenaline, 
and it's just kind of ramped up day in and day out in your body. And so um, when you're in that kind of situation, over time, bad things start to happen in your body. We know the chronic illnesses come on easier, the obesity, the high blood pressure, the diabetes, and so on and so forth. But also um, when it comes to the risk of infection, for example, COVID-19, if your stress hormones are already ramped up and now here you have COVID-19 and you're going to have to ramp up the stress hormones even more to deal with the illness that is now um, coming into your body and the great deal of inflammation that's surging in your body, your body's not going to be able to accomplish that as efficiently and as, uh, as well as somebody who has low stress hormones in their body and is not in that kind of situation. That person can ramp up those stress hormones when they're going through that illness and do much, much better through the course of the infection. So let's talk a little bit more about that, Greg. We're wanting to help people so that those stress hormones aren't chronically elevated. What are some of the tried and true, if you will, stress management techniques that people should especially be paying attention to today? Well, David, I think the number one thing that comes to my mind, especially as a physician who um, through the years at times has, has not gotten enough of this, and that's sleep. Sleep is so important to calm down your body. Um, we know from the research that's uh, in our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, that if you get inadequate amounts of sleep, the very next day, you have much higher hormone levels in terms of the stress hormones in your body. Um, that's going to be raising your blood pressure, for example. And so trying to focus on how to, can I get better sleep? How can I improve the sleep quality that I do get? and um, get more sleep. Um, thankfully, some of the research is showing that with people in lockdown and so on, there have been, in some segments, an improvement uh, in terms of the hours of sleep, you know, a little bit, but people are tending to go to bed a lot later. You know, they don't have to necessarily get up um, for their job sometimes if their uh, business has put things on lockdown too. And so um, there's this creeping kind of going to bed late, sleeping in too long, um, that is maybe not as good for, for your sleep health either. And so I'm um, trying to discipline yourself and saying, you know what, I need to go to bed early. I need to get myself an uh, adequate amount of sleep and the, the adequate uh, activity, the physical activity, getting outside that fresh air, that sunshine improves the quality of your sleep at night. So there's intrinsic benefits. So benefits just from doing the exercise, benefits just from getting outside, getting the vitamin D. But these things... Uh give additional benefits because they're going to help us sleep better at night and hopefully help us be more relaxed even when we lay down? Is, is exercise going to help us with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I know in my own personal experience that if I go multiple days without exercise, my sleep quality diminishes substantially. If I even have one day where I have a significant improvement in the amount of exercise I'm getting, um, that night I'll sleep much better. And so hopefully many of you have experienced that as well. And, and the benefits of exercise to improve the sleep, I think, is pretty important for many people. It's something that needs to be attended to if that's a big issue uh, for you. And I think for most people it is. So I hear things that can help us as far as our ability to deal with stress, getting adequate sleep, getting adequate exercise, regularity. It sounds like that's part of the, uh, uh, the equation as well. What about other things that we can be doing to help us in this whole arena? I mean, one thing that comes to mind, considering the, the rampant chronic uh, disease problem we have in America, you know, some 70 
percent of Americans are overweight. We already touched on those things. And that's eating too much before bed. Hmm. We know that the food intake that you take um, before bed, especially as you get older, when you're younger, many people don't seem to notice these things as much. But as you get older, the amount of food you take, the quality of the food you take, you take too much fatty food. The research shows the same. If you take uh, a bunch of fat right before bed, the quality of your sleep um, diminishes substantially. And that's pretty much across the board. If you're going to take any food at all before bed, try to make it at least four hours before bed. Try to make it primarily carbohydrate-rich food, like fruit would be the, the best thing, like a, an apple or a banana or a kiwi or orange or something like that, maybe a little fruit salad, if, you know, just in very small amounts, you know, not too much. And um, you'll sleep so much better that night. That's especially true if you're more of a sedentary person. Obviously, if you are very active and, and you know, have a farm or have a significant uh, level of activity in your job, you won't notice those things maybe as much. But it's something to look at to see if, um, if you can work on that if you're struggling to sleep. So, Greg, uh, our time has nearly slipped away. I mean, we've got uh, all of maybe a couple minutes if we're lucky in the show. And I know there's so much more to talk about when it comes to stress. Mental outlook is a huge part of that. Is there anything that's helped you personally in that regard that you think might be worth sharing with uh, those tuning in today? Well, David, I know for my life, when I spend more time in the spiritual part of my life, when I spend more time in prayer and uh, and focusing on those calming aspects, I know that I do so much better with the anxiety and stress levels in my life. When I spend more time with my family, take time to uh, reconnect with those who are most important in my life, my stress levels go way down. When I have time for recreation, time to spend time with my children, uh, my stress levels go way down in terms of just being able to uh, have that fun time, have that um, enjoyable time together. And I think we need to really um, take advantage of the extra time that we have during this epidemic to make those things a priority um, and not neglect to improve that. Because if you allow your stress levels to stay high day by day by day, you are not going to be prepared for when the big stressors come. Mm. And so taking that extra time to do those important things is absolutely essential. That's such powerful stuff, Greg. Our time has slipped away from us, but I'm so thankful that you are on the front lines of making a difference when it comes to COVID-19, but you're also using that uh, public health training and that commitment to share with others things that we can do to maintain our health. And uh, even if we are exposed to COVID-19, hopefully to come out a whole lot better. Thanks so much, Greg. Well, that's all for today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.